0: Section 9 of The Red Lamp by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. July 25th. And now where are we? We can no longer doubt that the same hand which throttled Carraway and attacked Halliday has brought about the disappearance and almost certain murder of Maggie Morrison. Halliday knows it. Edith knows it. I know it. But what use are we to make of our knowledge? What effect, for instance, will it have on my own serio comic position... Could Greeno arrest me on suspicion? Although Halliday laughs at that, he is, I think, a trifle uncertain. He feels, as I do, that before long Greeno will have to satisfy the public by an arrest of some sort, and that I am the only person against whom he has the shadow of a case. We held a three-cornered conference at the boathouse this afternoon, while Jane slept after luncheon, and for the first time Edith was taken fully into our confidence. She went a trifle pale, but she slipped a hand into mine as a vote of confidence. You, she said. The gentlest soul on earth, hiding a knife under that float there and going out at night in a boat to kill somebody, why you can't even row a boat properly. The small laugh which followed helped us all. What developed last night is as follows. How day got out of the car at the spot where the truck was found, and had Edith go back and approach slowly along the road from town. Approximately the conditions were the same as those of the night of the disappearance, save that no rain was falling. Halliday, it appears, was searching for that spot, back among the trees, where the unknown had waited, secure from observation but still able to see the truck's lights far enough away to be able to run out and hail it before it had passed. After two or three experiments he found the proper location, and there commenced a sort of intensive search with the pocket flash, with Edith in the car, to warn him of any approach, and the lights out. Note, perhaps it is as well to record here a conversation with Halliday, which took place a day or so before. In that, I recall, he stated that the first man who takes the case blazes the trail for any others who may come after. The situation more or less crystallizes under his handling of it. This, he claims, is the weakness of the French system which follows one direction until it ends in a blind alley, before it takes up another, and strength of Scotland Yard, where into a central office is brought from varying sources all collectible material, which is there assorted and clarified. Greeno's mistake here, he said, is that he has directed all his efforts toward finding the body, under the impression that that will yield the necessary clues. That's all well enough, but time is going by, has gone by, and he has nobody, and in the meantime Rain is wiping out some possible clues, and the murderer himself is free to pick up the others. He insisted that there would be clues of one sort or another. There is no such thing as a perfect crime, he said, and of course the general idea that a clue is some mysterious phenomenon which it requires superhuman powers to understand is all bosh. Clues are practically always trivial, because it is only the trivial things the criminal overlooks he takes care of the big ones. It may be as well to add, too, that the reason he did not make this investigation earlier was that, until the search shifted to the sea and the marshes, the vicinity where the truck was found was still the focal point, and was rarely without its constable or its group of curious onlookers. Not under the tree he had selected, but perhaps a dozen feet away from it, he found, well trampled into the ground, a small screw cap, made of tin, exactly similar, he tells me, to those used on the cans of certain makes of ether, and underneath which there is a cork In my case, he was unlucky, he explains. He went through the same procedure and took the cap off before he hailed me, but the crook came out. He had better luck this last time. As to his discovery of the murderer's infernal symbol, he is more reticent. He had some sort of a hunch to examine the trees themselves, he says simply. What do you mean by a hunch? I don't know. Just an idea, I suppose. You thought there might be something on a tree? I don't know that I thought about it at all, Skipper. I just turned the flash up and there it was. Perhaps I am wrong, but his explanation does not quite satisfy me. Nor, I think, does it satisfy himself. With all his keen intelligence, he is strictly conventional. I think he believes it would somehow invalidate his manhood to confess that his hunch might have been a guidance by some unseen source. But the triangle enclosed in a circle was there on a tree only thirty feet back from the road. July twenty-sixth, Annie Cochran says absolutely that there was neither a red lamp nor a red lantern in the other house. I stopped her this morning and asked her. The day has brought no developments in the Morrison case, which has settled down more or less into a routine. The searchers are fewer each day, the fishermen have gone back to their nets and trawls, and today we'll probably see the last of the attempts to drag likely spots on the bay. There are many now who believe that this time the anchor rope is shorter, and that the body, securely anchored to the ooze at the bottom of the bay, will not be uncovered by the lowest tide. But if the day has brought no developments outside, it has brought one or two to us here for one thing the morning mail returned to me through the dead letter office my letter of thanks to the young woman in salem ohio an event which would puzzle me more did i not suspect the lady of using a fictitious name for all her apparent frankness for another jane has at last unbosomed herself she maintains that on the night of the nineteenth she saw maggie morrison clairvoyantly Rather, on the morning of the 20th, for granted that she has actually had another of her curious psychic experiences, there is a discrepancy in time here as marked as the interval between Uncle Horace's death and her vision of him lying on the library floor. Maggie Morrison disappeared, presumably, at 11 o'clock the night of the 19th. Jane's vision occurred at 3 in the morning of the 20th, or four hours later. This morning, at 11 o'clock, Jane left the cottage, for the first time in days, giving as an excuse that she meant to look over Warren Halliday's clothing and bring back such as required mending. I need a little attention of that sort myself, I observed. I don't mind competing with a tapestry. After all, that is art, and what am I to art, but I resent competing with a younger and handsomer man. She gave me the smile with which every wife greets an old familiar jocularity of every husband, and left me to my reading. When an hour, however, had gone by, and she had not returned, I began to grow uneasy. Halliday, I knew, was out on the bay, and in such times as these any small deviation from the normal is upsetting. I started after her, therefore, and was startled not to find her in the living quarters or on the veranda, for when I called she answered from below, and going down I found her among the boats. "'Well,' I said, "'and are you going fishing?' "'I was just wandering about,' she said. "'There's another boat, isn't there?' "'Halliday's out in it. Why?' But she pretended not to hear me, and went up the steps again. Even then she made various excuses not to leave at once. She went inside, and I could hear her straightening the small living room. When there was nothing more to do she came out again. I don't think he has cooked a thing since it happened, she said. Suppose we wait for him and take him back to luncheon? She is no actress, is Jane, and it began to dawn on me that she was determined to wait for Halliday's return, and that she had one of her hidden reasons for it. It was there, sitting on the boathouse veranda, that she finally told her story, which is detailed in The Extreme. You remember, she said, the night of Maggie's disappearance, that a storm was threatening, and that I was nervous? I felt queer, I can't describe it, William. I had a sort of premonition, I think, anyhow. I didn't want to go to bed, and when I told you that, you started off to Dr. Hayward's for a powder. You had meant deliberately to stay awake? Yes. Once in a while something terrifies me, and I am afraid even to wink for fear something happens while my eyes are closed. It was like that. Edith was writing something or other, shut in her room, and after you had gone, the storm began to come up, and I felt queer and jumpy. I went around the windows downstairs, and then went into the living room and sat down to wait for you. Let's see, what time was that? It must have been ten o'clock, maybe a little later. Then, I hate to tell you this, William, it sounds so silly. I've been thinking some pretty foolish things myself lately, my dear, I said gravely. Go ahead. Jack was very strange, from the moment we went in there. He sat and stared at that old parlor organ. I— At the parlor organ? What in the world? At the parlor organ, she said positively, or rather, above and behind it where it sits across the corner. And after a while I thought I saw something there. What sort of something? I can't tell you, she said and shivered. That is, it wasn't really anything. It was like a mist. I could just tell there was something there, and then Jock lifted up his head and howled at it, and... I don't even remember getting upstairs, William. Now, so far, this runs fairly true to form. The usual strange combination of the grotesque, witness the parlor organ, overstrained nerves due to the approach of an electrical storm, and Jock, absently staring at nothing at all and preparing to give the storm howl for howl. It is the remainder of Jane's story which seems worthy of consideration, in view of her previous average of hits. She went to sleep, sinking fathoms deep into unconsciousness, but at three o'clock she wakened, suddenly and fully, and sat up in her bed. But she was not in a bed at all. She was in a boat, and Maggie Morrison was also in it, lying at her feet. After a time, she has no idea how long, the vision faded, and she was still sitting up in her bed. Such details as I can draw from her are as follows. Did you see Uncle Horace in the same way? Wakening out of a sleep? Yes. Was it the same sort of light? Not a light, exactly. It doesn't come from anywhere. I can't describe it exactly. The things I see are luminous. She has, however, her strict limitations. She speaks of a boat, but whether it was quiet or in motion, she has no idea. Asked if she and the girl were alone, she thinks not, but can give no reason for thinking so. Asked as to why she believed the girl was dead, she says, I felt that she was dead. And then qualifies that by adding, Besides, I never have these visions unless someone has died. This, like most broad statements, is an error, but in this case the general developments bear her out. I myself believe that, if she saw the Morrison girl at all, she saw her dead, as she says. She saw no rope on the body or in the boat, and there was no sign of injury on the girl. She looked very peaceful, says Jane, and sets me to shuddering. On one point, however, she is entirely definite. She maintains that there are pieces of cloth tied around the oarlocks of the boat. White cloth, she adds as an afterthought. Why cloth? To keep the oars from making a noise, says my Jane, who has been in a rowboat perhaps a half-dozen times in all her life. We sat on the veranda while Halliday came in with the boat-he had been out, I dare say, on some scouting business of his own-and I confessed to a sort of terror that by some unlucky chance we might find the oarlocks of this very boat, wrapped with white cloth, to keep the oars from making a noise. But they showed no stigma of crime. Why, I said to Jane, as Halliday tied his boat and came with his splendid stride up the runway, why did you come down here to look at our boats, my dear? She showed a faint distress. I don't know, William. I just had a feeling that I had to come. I have not asked her why she has suppressed this experience for so long carrying it down with her to pour my breakfast coffee, going with it through the day, and at night mounting the stairs with it and so to bed, brushing her hair meticulously, and settling Jock for the night, going in to kiss Edith and tuck her into her fresh white bed, and then closing her door shutting herself away with it for the night, and always with the guilty feeling that she was withholding that which should be known. For she no more doubts that Maggie Morrison was killed or thrown into the sea from a boat with muffled oarlocks than she doubts her own existence but coupled with that certainty has been her dread of possible publicity, and that ever-present feeling of hers that whatever power she has is somehow shameful. My poor Jane. July 27th. The blow has fallen again, and this time almost at our very door. That it is not murder is not due to any lack of intention, but to weakness in execution. I have spent a large portion of the day in urging Edith and Jane to go back to town, but without result... Not unless you go, Jane said firmly, and Edith and I exchanged glances. As a matter of fact, last night's events have left me in a more precarious position than before, and I feel that any move on my part would only precipitate matters. Greeno has given out a statement to the reporters that an early arrest may be expected, and I do not, for the life of me, understand why he has not pounced already. I imagine the only thing that has saved me so far has been the single fact that Peter Geist knows I was on the sloop the night and hour when Halliday was attacked. That puzzles him. To record last night's strange affair in sequence. I could not sleep, a condition which is growing chronic with me lately, and at about midnight I went downstairs and outside. The night was extremely dark. I paced back and forward along the drive, keeping at first close to the lodge, but gradually extending my steps as I grew accustomed to the darkness. After twenty minutes or so of this, and at the extreme of my swing towards the other house, I heard some sort of movement in that direction and stopped to listen. It was a cautious disturbance of the shrubbery, and I swung in among the trees and stood listening. It was not repeated, however, and I turned to go back. I had, however, lost my way, and for some brief time I floundered about. At last I found the sundial, by striking against it, and thus orienting myself, turned about and struck back toward the lodge. I had not gone ten feet before I heard the bell ringing. Note. A large bell on the kitchen porch of the main house had used in times before the telephone was installed, to summon the gardener. It is rung by pulling a rope attached to it. It rang sharply twice, and then abruptly stopped, and the sudden silence seemed somehow ominous, like the stillness after a shriek. There were no lights in the main house, and no further sounds came from it. I dare say at such times one does not think, one acts automatically. Someone has said, with the spinal cord, not the brain. I do not recall thinking at all, but I do recall trying to feel my way through the trees, and that I ran into one and was partially stunned for an instant. The house was still completely dark and silent. I felt my way with more caution, skirted the shrubbery, and at last found the railing leading up the steps to the kitchen. Here I was on safer ground, and I crossed the small porch to the door with increased confidence, only to stumble over something and almost fall. I knew at once what it was, and I felt suddenly ill, although my brain was as active as ever in my life. Quote, in the pit of his stomach, man is always a coward. Unquote. But I found some matches in my dressing-gown pocket, and striking one bent over a figure lying prone at my feet. It was young Gordon, unconscious and bleeding from a blow on the head, and securely tied with a rope. I was still stooping over him, fumbling for another match, when a flashlight shone in my face, fairly blinding me. It played on me for a moment, and then on the boy stretched on the floor, and now slightly moving. What's happened? said a voice from behind it, and with relief I recognized it as the doctor's. He's hurt, I said, rising dizzily. Struck on the head, I think. Open the door there and turn on the lights, I'll carry him in. I did as he told me, being still somewhat unsteady, and as he laid the boy on the floor and straightened I was aware that his eyes, as they rested on me, were hostile and suspicious. Immediately, however, he went to work on the boy, examining him first and then removing the rope. "'He's only stunned,' he said, and leaving him lying as he was, began to move about the room. Just inside the door was the poker from the kitchen range, and this, with the rope, he laid aside carefully. Then he went outside, and with his flash examined the bell. "'Just where were you, Porter, when this happened?' he asked. "'In the grounds by the sundial. I couldn't sleep. When I heard the bell, I came on a run. "'It was the boy who pulled the bell?' "'I haven't an idea.' He went back to his patient, and examined the wound and the scalp more carefully." After that he dressed it, the boy by that time moving about and groaning, but still only partially conscious. I gave such help as I could, getting water and so on, and when the dressing was done the doctor disappeared and returned with a cushion. Keeping the boy supine, he slipped it under his head. Then he straightened. "'You'd better notify the old man,' he said. "'I'll stay here if you don't mind.' And from the look he gave me, I gathered that he had no intention of leaving me with the boy. I made my way upstairs to the room over the den, and knocked for some time before I was heard." Then Mr. Bethel called out, startled, and I asked if I could come in. I heard him making heavy work of getting out of bed, and finally he shot the bolt, and opening the door an inch or two, glared out at me. "'What the devil's the matter?' "'Nothing serious,' I said. "'There's been a little trouble downstairs, and we thought you'd better be told.' "'A fire?' "'Not a fire,' I reassured him, and gave him a brief account of what had occurred. He was not particularly gracious, demanded to know what the boy was doing outside at that hour, and seemed to feel that, with the doctor already in the house, his responsibility was ended.' As there was actually nothing he could do, I helped him back to his bed and left him sitting on the side, an unpleasant but helpless figure. As I went out, he asked me to bring him a cup of hot water. The boy was conscious when I went back to the kitchen, staring around him, and particularly concentrating on the doctor and myself. He put his hand to his head and felt the bandage. "'Where'd I get that?' he asked thickly. After a time, he tried to get up, and the doctor put him into a chair. "'Now, Gordon,' he said, "'what happened to you? Try and think.' "'He hit me,' he said finally. "'The dirty devil!' who hit you? But he was still too dazed for coherent thought. He improved rapidly after that, however, although he complained of severe headache. He became garrulous, too, as happens after concussion, but out of his maunderings we were able to secure a fairly connected story. He had been unable to sleep because of certain noises in his room. He glanced at me. You were right, old dear, he said elegantly. When you said the place has an unpleasant reputation, I'll tell the world it's unpleasant. He had got up and gone down to the kitchen for something to eat. After that, reluctant to go up to his room again, he had wandered out onto the kitchen steps and sat there. It was then that he heard someone stealthily approaching the house. He listened, and finally he heard a window of the old gunroom next to the laundry being raised. He stared that way, and insisted he saw a dark figure there. The next moment it was gone, and he was certain there was someone in the house. He had, apparently, turned to enter the house and head off the intruder, but was struck down in the doorway. On the matter of ringing the bell, he was rather vague at first, not remembering that he had done so, but later saying he had had his hand on the rope when the blow came. Heward listened to this intently. Then he turned to me. And you were where, Porter? By the sundial, on the other side of it. I had started toward home. Do you mean to say that after the bell rang, this man Gordon Speaks of had time to tie him and escape before you got here? I've told you the facts. It not a simple matter to get here from the sundial in the dark. I remembered the hot water then, and finding some in the tea carried it up to Mr. Bethel. He showed me more civility this time, inquired after the boy, and even offered his pocket flask, lying on his bedside table. There was a revolver beside it, and he saw me glance at it and smiled grimly. What with the sounds inside your house and the things that are happening outside, I think it best to be prepared for anything. So in spite of young Gordon's prophecy, he too has been hearing things. In spite of the doctor's attitude and my own fears, I cannot see today that a dispassionate examination of the evidence would really involve me. Gordon saw a man enter the gunroom window and was attacked from the kitchen by that man. It must be perfectly evident to Grino, on hearing the doctor's story, that had I for any reason desired to make some nefarious entrance into the house, I need not have resorted to a window. I have keys to every door, and can produce them. Thomas, however, who seems to have his own methods of acquiring information, today tells a fact which, in my ignorance of such matters, I had not noticed last night. He states that the doctor reports the boys having been tied in the same manner as poor Carraway, in two half-hitches around the wrists, a turn or two about the body and arms, and ending in two half-hitches at the ankle. The rope, it appears, was not brought for the purpose, but had been left lying on the top of any Cochran's laundry basket in the kitchen when she went home last night. Later, Greeno and Dr. Hayward have driven past, on their way to the main house. I have telephoned to Halliday, and he is on his way here. I may need him. July 28th. After all, things passed off yesterday better than I had hoped. The detective concedes that, while in daylight it is a simple matter to reach the main house from the sundial, it is not an easy one at night. And I think he was puzzled when I said, After all, the real mystery to me is how Dr. Hayward, who says he was passing on the main road in his car, could reach the house so soon after I did. He had his car. But he didn't drive in. You left it outside the lodge gates, doctor, didn't you? I didn't know just where the bell was ringing. But you knew there was such a bell on the main house. Everyone around here knows that. Even at night, you made very good time. I had only had time to light one match and see the boy when you turned your flashlight on me. I imagine, and Halliday agrees with me, that whatever Greeno had in mind when he came, the new element thus introduced caused him to hesitate. And to add to his hesitation, the doctor, from the breezy unctuousness of his entrance, took to twitching and gnawing his fingertips. "'I don't suppose you're intimating that I knocked the boy down, Porter?' he said. "'But it sounds like it. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know him I never saw him, to my knowledge, until last night. I'm not intimating anything. I'm in a peculiar position, that's all. And you have been considerably more than intimating that I was where I had no business to be last night.' I had, you see, exactly as much reason to be there as you had, rather more, I imagine. I was perhaps a trifle excited, but heaven knows I had a right to be. I know what you have in mind, Mr. Greeno, and I'm glad to have this chance to lay my cards on the table. Ask my wife why I was on the float the night Carway was killed in the bay. She'll tell you I was in bed until she roused me and sent me down to the beach. Ask Peter Geis where I was at the hour when Halliday was attacked, he can tell you... Ask the newspaper reporter who told me, right here, about that culvert under the road where Halliday's car overturned, and ask Halliday himself about our excursion to examine it, and my losing my fountain pen there, and then ask yourself if I would open the gunroom window of the main house to make an entrance when I have in this desk a key to every door in the place. Greeno smiled dryly. That's a pretty strong defense, considering that you haven't been accused, he said. As a matter of fact, we haven't found your fountain pen, Mr. Porter. I'm afraid we overlooked something there. Since they have gone, I feel, although he has not said so, that Halliday believes I have made a tactical error... And I dare say, in one way, I may have. I have given my defense to the opposition, and not only that, I realize that my list of witnesses is painfully weak. My wife, my niece's lover, and Peter Geis. And Peter Geis, by local repute, is, like some of the weak sisters of the world, to be bought with a price. Nevertheless, I feel a great sense of relief. I have at least made a hole in that web of circumstantial evidence which has seemed to be closing around me, and sent the detective scurrying back to the center of it again, to spin such new threads as he is able. July 29th. Today has been quiet, those constant reminders of the latest tragedy, the boats dragging the bay, have disappeared, and once more we see gay little picnic parties chugging across the water to Robinson's Point of their laden with hampers and, I dare say, with flasks. Edith came down to luncheon in her best pink frock with a hat to match, and made shameless eyes at me during that meal. The cause of this sudden attention developed later, when she took the car, and Halliday, and went to the lighthouse. Over the purpose behind this unexpected display of interest in our Coast Guard service, she draws a discreet veil. For the rest of the days, there was nothing to record. Jane and I took a brief walk this afternoon and noticed a man clearing the woods on Niley's farm across the road. We stopped and watched him for a time, and he seemed curiously inexpert at the job, but perhaps I am too ready to suspect Greeno's fine hand in everything I see. I confess, however, to a certain unholy joy when Jock made a most ungentlemanly attack on him and was only called off with real difficulty. Young Gordon, although still confined to his room, is up and about again. Today I asked Hayward, who had been to see him, if I might visit him, but he shook his head. He is still in an excitable condition, he said. Better give him a day or two more. As, however, Annie Cochran reports him in excellent shape, although moody and irritable, I can only feel that the doctor has his own reasons for keeping me away from him. At the same time, I must be careful not to allow suspicion to carry me too far. Mr. Bethel states flatly that the boy has no idea of who attacked him, and himself suggests Thomas. My talk with Mr. Bethel last night was interesting, and not without an unusual quality of its own. He chose to be civil, and rather more than that. I felt that the alarm of my entrance once over, he not only greeted me with a sense of relief, but kept me as long as possible. And he voiced something of the sort before I left. My infirmity cuts me off from my kind, he said. I am dependent on the indulgence of others, and that is a poor thing. As it was the first time he had referred to his condition, I ventured to ask how he managed without Gordon. It seemed to me that the small laugh he gave was ironical. Paid solicitude, he said. I can manage without it. I make heavy weather of it, when I manage. My offer to assist him upstairs before I left, however, met with a decided negative. He was not going up yet, what he did it would be a slow process, but he had done it the last night or so, somehow. My impression of him is of a helpless and yet indefinably militant figure, in a dimly lighted room, sitting upright in its chair, one withered hand palm upwards on his knee, and the other not too far from the revolver. I am puzzled over that picture, as I am over the one which I saw from the terrace window as I approached. He gave the same impression then as he did when I left. Of a man waiting for something, as I looked in at him, he was facing toward the hall at the dining room door, directly across, with a concentration so great that my light tap at first did not reach his ears. And during the entire conversation which followed, every now and again I was conscious of a sudden abstraction on his part, an intent listening that made me nervous in spite of myself. But the conversation was both interesting and enlightening. He was, through the secretary, Annie Cochran, acquainted with the general outline of what has been going on, and even of the stories current about the house itself, especially as to the red lamp. I dare say my statement that the red lamp is locked away, he said whimsically, would not greatly assist the situation. As I understand it, they would simply say this was some further evidence of its abnormal powers. I gather that, like young Gordon, he has heard certain sounds in the house at night, but does not intend to be stampeded by them, to use his own words. He has some theory of a disturbance of molecular activity by some undiscovered natural law, which I could not follow closely. But in the discussion of superstition in general which followed, I was a trifle disconcerted to find him laying much of it to the Christian religion, that our present theology had given birth to the widespread belief in evil spirits and in sorcery. He went even further, and classed the adoration of saints as polytheism, and the worship of sacred relics as fetishism. Strangely enough, I had at that moment one of those curious sensations which I have heard referred to as a failure of the two sides of the brain to synchronize. Note, Lear, who has read this, advises me that this is now an exploded idea, and that only one side of the human brain functions at all. I had the feeling that, sometime, somewhere, eons ago, I had sat in a dimly lighted room and heard the same words, and that I had had the same instinctive revolt from them. But the impression was fleeting, and seeing perhaps that our views did not coincide, he added that I must not believe that he disregarded the spiritual side of the individual, or of the universe. And he quoted Virgil's Spiritus Inter Alit with a certain unction. "'Soul animating matter,' he said. "'It is a great thought, Mr. Porter, "'and I have reached that time in life "'when what is to come is assuming more importance "'than that which has gone.'" Then he dismissed the subject and went back again to the local situation, this time taking up the crimes themselves. He sees no necessary connection between the disappearance of Maggie Morrison and the tragedy of Carraway, and on this I did not enlighten him. On his saying, however, that in my place he would not feel safe in keeping Jane and Edith here, I told him at some length my own involvement, and this brought about a discussion of Greeno and his methods. He smiled dryly over my account of the detective's psychological attitude. "'Psychology,' he said. "'The study of men and motives is a science in itself. With all due respect to the gentleman in question, I imagine that his chief psychological resource would be that portion of the third degree which consists in knocking a man unconscious, and then obtaining his confession before he has entirely recovered his senses. I would rather trust your young friend at the boathouse, at least he appears to be using a certain independence of thought.' He broke off there, as he had once or twice before, and seemed again to be listening but in a moment he picked up the talk again. The mention of unconsciousness had brought Gordon to mind, and his first words on recovering. It was then that I inquired if the secretary had recognized, or thought he recognized, his assailant that night, and that Mr. Bethel replied in the negative. At least, he said, he has not said so to me, but he is a queer boy, moody and sometimes sullen, a good secretary but an indifferent companion. As to the strange affair of the attack on Gordon, he himself with Andy Cochran's assistance examined the gun room the next morning. The lock of the window was broken, but he fancied that was a matter of old standing. He was having it repaired. The boy's story seems to be borne out by the facts, he said. There were indications, as you probably know, that someone had entered by the window. But what strikes me as strange is that whoever did so should have known his way so well. Gordon says no light was turned on, yet this fellow puts his hand on the only weapon about, the poker, without difficulty. He turned and glanced at me. How long have you known Thomas the gardener? he asked. Too long to think he would do a thing like that, I said rather warmly. I dare say, and although I think Thomas is not fond of Gordon, that would be carrying distaste rather far, I imagine. He has no anxiety for himself, or at least so he said. I am personally not so certain, for as I looked back from the terrace on my way out, he was once more facing toward the hall, and, I somehow felt, watching it. End of section 9